Well, hello and welcome to another episode of GUcast. This is Declan Murphy, urologist here at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. Lovely to be back with you and, of course, joined as ever by my co-host, Dr. Renu Epen, urologist here at Peter Mac as well. Hello, Renu. Good morning, Declan. Great to be here uh, post-lockdown. So spirits are high and we've got some fantastic guests today. Yeah, spirits are high because of anyone who's listened to this podcast for the last few months will uh, know that Melbourne, of course, has been in severe lockdown, no restaurants open, no shops open, nobody going anywhere. And so this week, the, the gloom has lifted a bit, hasn't it? And you know, this podcast was born out of lockdown, wasn't it? I mean, it was really a way to, to communicate with people during these horrible times. It was, yes. So are we going to persist when we all get out of all this? Well, and, and by the look of it, unfortunately, it looks like no one's going anywhere soon yeah. because Europe's overwhelmed and so on. So... Uh, It's going to be with us for a while more, and so will we um, here on GUcast. And we have a fantastic program lined up today to focus on uh, one of the trials that we've been quite involved with here uh, at Peter Mac for the past uh, couple of years. Um, It's called the Navigate trial, and we'll come on to that uh, in a few minutes. And the the topic is therefore going to be active surveillance and how we support our active surveillance patients. Um, And Renu, our first guest is joining us uh, on Zoom today from Brisbane. Very excited to have uh, Matt as our first guest today. Matt Roberts is a urologist at uh, Met. North Hospitals in Royal Brisbane and Redcliffe. Uh, he's the main Queensland investigator for the Navigate trial and, and, and Queensland is really our first site outside uh, Victoria and we're very excited to have you Matt, welcome. Thanks for having me on this uh, wonderful program. Uh, it's great to be here and great to contribute to Navigate. Uh, great to have you, Matt. And, uh, you know, active surveillance is such an important topic, isn't it? Because um, it's it's sort of a, a situation that causes patients and urologists a lot of anxiety. Um, so, Matt, can you tell us a little bit about the interactions that you have with patients when it comes to the prospect of active surveillance? Thanks, Renu. Any uh, cancer diagnosis conversation is never easy. And the first thing patients hear is the word cancer. Uh, and then as much as you try to, to tell them that, well, this is a low-risk cancer and the, the risk of uh, dying from this is less than 1% of 15 years, depending on the cohort you look at and the patient in front of you. Um, so that becomes much more reassuring. And then when you tell these people that actually it's one of the few cancers that we actually don't treat, we just watch uh, a lot of patients and their partners just stare at you in disbelief. Yeah. So it, uh, it really is a wonderful management strategy that we have uh, which has really contributed to the reduction in overtreatment uh, and really uh, helped us with our prostate cancer management, I think. There is quite a burden, though, just as you've said, as they look at you and think, well, but you're not going to treat it, but my friend died of prostate cancer or I've, I've had it in the family and so on. So we understand that regardless of how reassuring we all are, that, that patients can find this really very stressful, Matt. Yeah, I agree. And, and the thing I try to do is say, well, look, this isn't pancreatic cancer. This isn't lung cancer. This is you know, one of you know, particularly low-risk prostate cancer, it's one of the best types to have. Uh, but we also don't know that we can't guarantee you that it's going to stay this way. And that's why we'll closely watch it with a mixture of PSAs, examinations, biopsies. And thankfully in Australia, we have MRI as well to help us that uh, using MRI before a biopsy with the subsequent diagnosis of uh, low-risk prostate cancer is just so reassuring. It's such a, such a unique cancer, prostate cancer, in, in that sort of way. And Declan, we've often spoken about how the title of trials should really mean something. And I think the Navigate trial is fantastic like that because it really helps patients to navigate through some of these very confusing concepts. 
Yeah, exactly right, because it's important that it's not just one option we're presenting to patients because, of course, other options for management of a localised prostate cancer do include surgery and radiotherapy, but the point is with this type of localised cancer, predominantly low-grade cancer, we're usually trying to encourage the use of surveillance for these patients. But we understand because there are decisions, there are options that helping patients navigate uh, these decisions is important. So with that, we are going to uh, welcome our two studio guests we have here at Peter Mac today from the Navigate programme. We have uh, Natalie. Richards, who's um, who's a clinical nurse actually, but she's the project manager of the Navigate trial. Um, and also returning to the program, Alan White, um, who's been on with us before. He's a well-known um, a patient himself, a prostate cancer patient who's written about his experience. And he's actually a consumer uh, on the trial. I hate that word consumer, but it's very important that we have patient representatives. But uh, trial lingo tends to label people like Alan um, as a, a, a consumer. So um, welcome back, uh, Alan. Uh, thank you back. for joining us. Thank you. Good to be back. Thank you. And so you're going to talk a bit about uh, your involvement in the trial. And we'll also welcome Natalie uh, Richards. So Natalie, thank you for coming into the studio. Thank you. It's great to be here. Fantastic. So we want to learn a bit about Navigate, first of all, for those people out there who have no idea what this is, because the trial is still running, of course. So there are still opportunities to for patients or for clinicians to refer into the trial. So Alan, tell us a bit about the, the setup of the trial, the history of the trial and the design. Well, it goes back, uh, coming on to eight years, but I won't bore you with <coughs> every detail. So it, it started out with the, the uh, Victorian Cancer Agency had noted back around 2012 there'd been a shift in management for low-risk prostate cancer, which, as most people understand, is uh, involving radical prostatectomy, external beam radiotherapy and brachytherapy, and that included active surveillance, but they wanted to investigate the impact of active surveillance on prostate cancer, and so that led to a collaborative uh, research arm being created to look at the psychosocial research aspect of it and they looked at uh, the focus of active surveillance on low-risk prostate cancer so that led to a uh, name being created which was asteroid which means you know hanging out there somewhere I guess in active surveillance an asteroid floating around and they were looking at the shift in the this treatment paradigm that started to creep up and men were still unsure about what was going on there'd been a very an uptake of active surveillance because men and their partners didn't understand what was involved. And actually, partners' views were poorly understood as well because there's a couple's journey that often happens. And that led to this active surveillance and other treatment options. And it was to leading to look at what the research options were and how they were taken up with. And there's a, then that rolled on eventually to other papers being developed. And eventually, we, we got money from uh, the NA, excuse me, NH and MRC with funding, and of course Swinburne University in partnership with uh, Professor Penny Schofield, who's the principal investigator. And with that money, we were looking at a booklet initially that included treatment options and what the varying degrees of side effects were. But we quickly realised that <coughs> having booklets wasn't going to work; it would not get to everyone. And that led to a creation of the uh, development of the DVDs and the website creation, which led into Navigate. And that gave it accessibility around Australia, which was fantastic. So men could access it and their partners anywhere in Australia, didn't have to go anywhere, which was really great. So the point was to try and, I suppose... Um, fill the information gap and have patients feel well informed about this and and, and it's a decision tool I suppose or maybe that's not the correct term Natalie will correct Mm. me in a minute but um, it was a randomised trial design so um, perhaps we'll go to Natalie to talk a little bit more about this. So with the goal of including patients who were eligible for surveillance, who needed to be a better, better informed, why why a randomised trial or what's the point of having two different arms? What were we trying to test here? 
So, Declan, we want to um, compare. So, the the Navigate website's been developed. It's been co-designed. So, a multidiscipline team with uh, prostate cancer uh, nurses, with clinicians, researchers, um, and importantly, it's kind of uh, been designed by men for men. And so with a range of videos and different resources within the Navigate website. So what we want to do is have a look and see if this resource is helpful for men um, when they're navigating or looking at their treatment options and weighing up the pros and cons of each of those options, which are, of course, active surveillance, so your monitoring, your surgery, radiotherapy and brachytherapy. And it's a randomised trial because we're comparing... um, men's uh, perceptions of of how they found the website against another website which is already um, publicly available so the PCFA the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia website to see um, how men respond to um, each of those resources. And uh, Natalie can you tell us can you go through with us the the eligibility criteria so you know the the clinical and and the other sort of logistical criteria? So um, the criteria is men that are newly diagnosed within three months mm-hmm. and they are eligible for active surveillance as deemed by their treating clinician. Um, it is Australian-wide and they do need to have access to computers and um, have you know, English proficiency to complete the questionnaires and, and to look at the resources. So those who are still deciding between treatment options, as long as active surveillance is an option for them, they'd be eligible? Yes, correct, yes. So let's talk a bit about that because um, there can be a little bit of confusion about who's suitable for active surveillance, Matt. You know, I think most of us will agree low-risk prostate cancer. When maybe you'll explain to us what a low-risk prostate cancer is for, for listeners who are not familiar with that detail. But then there are kind of slightly uh, cancers that are slightly outside low risk and we call those intermediate risk cancers. And so there's a question here if the trial says a patient's suitable for surveillance, you know, there may be some difference, I suppose, between uh, what clinicians uh, think about that. So can you tell us a little bit about low risk prostate cancer or indeed a little bit about intermediate risk prostate cancer that you might think is suitable for surveillance? It's a, a growing situation because when active surveillance first started, it was, you know, half of one core of three plus three. Uh, and then as time has gone on and we've become more comfortable with surveillance, we're really starting to expand uh, and now into favourable intermediate risk, which is uh, the equivalent of Gleason 3 plus 4 or ISUP grade group 2, uh, depending on your terminology. Uh, and, of course, in you know, a very small amount, particularly a very small amount of patent 4, which is uh, what we think is the real nasty part of it, and then also with favourable other characteristics such as a low PSA uh, and then whether the use of MRI and there's a particular lesion on the MRI, uh, as, as we've seen in some of the trials, that the presence of a lesion on MRI predicts subsequent upgrading. So potentially they're not favourable. But ultimately uh, it's up to a shared decision-making between the patient, their partner and the clinician uh, because it, the, I think the key point of active surveillance is that it's not treat now, Uh, it's not never treat, it's just not treat now. And so they might get treated in a year, two years, five years, whatever it is, but they've gained that extra period of time without the burden of side effects of radical treatment. 
That's such an important point to get across to patients, isn't it? It's not, it's not that they're being lumped into a group that's never going to get treatment or any further attention. This is a, it's a very dynamic situation. It means continuing to keep an eye on things and treat when necessary. And if we have a patient who we deem is suitable for surveillance renew, what sort of statistics do you give them to say, okay, well, if you're on surveillance uh, in a year's time or five years' time, what's the likelihood that you'll, you'll change from surveillance into treatment? I usually quote figures around... Um, well, actually, we have data from Victoria saying that at that one-year checkup, we normally do a further MRI and a biopsy, you know, between one year and 18 months following the initial diagnosis, and we, we produce data from Victoria showing it's about 18%. Yeah. About one in five patients, there's a slight change in the cancer, and then we change the plan. And if you stretch that out to five years, Matt, I think we usually quote figures of 25 to 30%. Yeah, and uh, the, the reason is also uh, an important one. Uh, as you say, Declan, that's you're talking about disease progression, which is you know, everyone is very accepting of that as a reason to change treatment. But the others is uh, often patient driven. Uh, you know, a lot of men and their partners lose their nerve of living with the cancer and think, no, no, now's time to have radical treatment. Uh, and that's why I think, yeah, as you say, uh, Victoria really is a world leader in active surveillance. And it's, it's only apt that this trial originated in Victoria uh, to really develop this wonderful website and decision aid to really help men navigate this process. So what we'll come to in a, in a few moments is how, how the trial is running and how to get enrolled in the trial. But Alan, um, before we do, I'm going to play you some audio from a patient uh, of ours who's on the trial. He's actually a Navigate uh, patient. Um, he was 58 when we diagnosed him with low-risk prostate cancer, so favourable cancer. Um, and I, what I want to do, first of all, is play you uh, his thoughts on when he was diagnosed with that cancer uh, as a 58-year-old. And I said to him, this is low-risk cancer. It's only one or two cores involved, grade group one or at least in six was we'd call in the old days uh, and here's what he said about that um I, I was quite traumatized right from the word go i guess from my perspective is that um i felt that um my my genes didn't help because my father had his prostate um removed due to cancer and um i guess i i sort of was immediately re- relieving what he went through so um yeah I was, I was really upset about the whole c word to be honest Upset, upset, traumatized. Does does that sound familiar to you as somebody who is very involved with prostate cancer support groups? You've written a book about your experience, uh, and uh, you know when I I, I phoned him uh, and and asked him these questions, I was even taken aback because this was my patient. I explained his diagnosis to him. I thought I did a great job, <laughs> reassuring. Ah, don't worry, it's just a, a tiny little bit low grade cancer. And his reaction was upset, traumatized. You know, so. Uh, maybe we as clinicians underestimate the impact of even explaining what I thought was a you know a very you know a very low you know low intensity situation. I was saying, don't worry about it. It's, the surveillance is going to be fine here. Look, it, yeah, it is a common one. Often confusion and distress, anger, uh, wanting second opinions, don't know what their options are, don't realise they have options, uh, looking for assistance. Some of them turn up with a support group, hoping to find out what other men did, <clears throat> but also being aware that everyone will be treated differently. But I can tell you that when men do come to support groups particularly and they come in uptight, we'll say, by the time they've heard other experiences and had a bit of a chat and a bit of a laugh and there's, you know, a bit of banter going on, they walk out feeling a lot more relaxed. They're not on their own. I think every man who gets diagnosed feels like he's the only one who's being diagnosed at the time. If they turn up a support group, they find another 20, 30 blokes have been down their track. They go, oh... I feel a bit better now I can understand what's going on. <clears throat> and I guess when hearing what he had to say, I know the, initially the first time I was diagnosed, first time around, anger, absolutely 
raging anger and uh, went home, <coughs> prepared dinner, opened a bottle of red, cranked up the rock and roll and really just not a good way to deal with it but that's how I dealt with it. I was pretty angry that somehow I'd slipped up somewhere in my health to be diagnosed initially. So it is confusing and particularly for his, he's got a family background. I had no family background so you know, where the hell has this come from? So I, I normally refer patients towards PCFA, actually, uh, as we discussed earlier. It's one of the trusted resources out there, and they're just in the process of updating a lot of their resource. Cancer Council is the other resource I refer to. Um, and the PCFA are the, the control arm of this trial, uh, Natalie, so that's the, what we point patients towards as a very high standard of care to find more information about your prostate cancer and so on. Um, but he was eligible to join the Navigate trial, so um, I offered him enrolment, and this was his uh, initial reaction. First and foremost, I was, I was very privilege that I was invited to participate in the program um, because not knowing a lot about uh, prostate cancer and obviously what options were available to me, um, having access to the platform and also navigating my way through the, the vignettes and the case studies that were available really helped me get my head around about what, what exactly I was, um, I guess, facing personally and potentially what might come uh, post post the, the procedure, etc. Well, I guess depending on what um, what direction I took. Yeah, so that's an important part of this, Natalie. The 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 program is not just designed to s- specifically only inform about active surveillance. Even though we as clinicians may have suggested to the patient active surveillance is our preferred option, the the point of the program is to, I suppose, bring a bit more balance and equipoise, and indeed to inform in case their cancer did change in the future. So, can you tell us a little about that? This isn't just single um, uh, messaging about active surveillance is safe for your cancer. It's presenting the options, and how how does how do we do that? Correct. So. Um the Navigate website is, has a decision aid built within it and men and their partners can access the decision-making exercise to help them arrive at a treatment decision. So included are over 40 videos of men, partners, oncologists, urologists and specialist uh, prostate nurses to provide a range of perspectives and personal experiences. There is various questionnaires that men and their partners can work through and upon completion the aid will provide the best uh, two or four management options based on the individual's answers and values. Yeah, I think that's important because we don't always know what matters most renewed to yeah. a patient, do we? You know, some patients, will, we may think, this is no problem, you're going to be fine. But in the back of the patient's mind is, uh, I saw my best friend dying of prostate cancer. It was a terrible Absolutely. few years. And, and they just associate themselves with that sort of scenario. So and everyone's we, got a different association. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. exactly. Whereas another patient, you know, that may be that patient's fears. I don't want to die of prostate cancer. The next patient will have a friend who's been through treatment for prostate cancer, has been left incontinent and yeah. lost erections and maybe relationship problems. And that Absolutely. may be their most, well, I don't want to end up like that, you know, yeah. you know et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. And, and, and that sort of individualised approach to this is really fantastic. Mm. <clears throat> um, Natalie, uh, just for, for um, clinicians and even patients who, who may be eligible for the Navigate trial, can you tell us about how you recruit patients? What are the ways in which they can be referred? So we have three methods. Uh, we, have participa- we have five participating sites in Melbourne <coughs> and two in um, Brisbane. And uh, so men can um, be screened or identified through clinics. Uh, Clinicians can actually also refer their patients uh, directly to us and we've tried to make it as easy as possible. So um, there's we do have like a, um, a form that can be completed that's accessible online, but clinicians can just email us directly. 
to refer their patients. And then the other approach, uh, which is might be quite novel, is men and their partners or their loved ones can actually self-refer to the trial. And, you know, one other thing I wanted to, to touch base on is, and you've repeated this so many times, it's men and their partners. And partners are, are invited and encouraged to participate. And Alan, I, you know, this is something that you feel very strongly about. In fact, the title of your book is not I've Lost My Prostate, it's We've Lost My <laughs> We've Prostate. Lost my, yes. So it's, it's, you've really acknowledged that this is a, a journey that a couple takes. Look, they do. And I think they're probably not a, a really aware of how impactful it can be on the relationship. And I think in some respects it's and um, pull the carpet out underneath the relationship that finds out where it's sitting, which unfortunately for some men, I've heard of some men, their wives walk away. You know, the relationship falls apart. And that can happen in any number of cancer diagnoses, but particularly this one really hits the relationship hard. But in other respects, it pulls the couple together because yeah. they're going to face this together dependent on whatever treatment they may have. And the two major effects, unfortunately, for... Uh, certainly uh, surgery is erectile dysfunction and overnight the man is incontinent and he will get better but they really hit that man's sense of, of being a man you know what can I control and what I can't control but certainly the relationships can come together and look at other ways of being in the relationship together at the same time. Yeah. Natalie you mentioned that uh, to get onto the trial yes. uh, there are a few ways of getting on and, and most trials we run our clinicians are participating in trials they'll identify a patient who may be eligible and offer them information but you mentioned that patients can refer themselves directly to the trial so that's a bit of a novel thing I think for this trial and I know it was built into the trial design and it was attractive to the funders and sponsors they thought yeah yeah go straight to patients so how, how does that work? So we have the website uh, navigateprostate.com.au and the uh, study is uh, Australian-wide. So it just makes it accessible to everyone um, in Australia. And so, you know, through a quick Google search, you can just type in Navigate Prostate. We should come up um, first. And men can actually look on the website. Uh, they can actually go through the eligibility checks and, and see if they're eligible. And we actually have more information providing um, about what low-risk prostate cancer means and what some of the definitions, because some men we find walk away from that initial conversation. They don't know what a Gleason score is. They don't know where they are on the scale of prostate cancer. So we wanted to provide some information to help educate people uh, uh, as well about what that means. Um, once they, they can either call us or they can complete the form, um, which is pretty simple, and it comes straight through to us. We're a small research team. And um, with that initial interaction, then we will phone um, within a couple of business days um, and speak with men um, to find out more. Um, we've actually had, in some cases, men have literally just been diagnosed. They've done a Google search, found us, and kind of within a day they're calling it. So they may have not even gone through all of their tests. And they're at that point, they are, you know, some are quite confused, uncertain, yeah, freaked out. Yeah, and um, I must say, as a clinician, um, I'll ask Matt about his experience as well, but I find it very easy. You, you know, you explain to the patient uh, it's a low-risk cancer, we think it's suitable for surveillance, we have this trial, and I literally just email the Navigate team straight away, copying the patient, and uh, mm. they can take it on from there. But I wonder, just from a clinical point of view, so if a patient's just Googling, they've just been found out, maybe they don't even know all the detail of their cancer, and maybe this whole thing of low-risk and intermediate risk hasn't been f fully explained. Is it possible that a, a patient's going to ring up and, and maybe is not not suitable for the trial um, because they haven't actually gone through their clinician. How does that work? That's a really interesting point. And yes, that is a big challenge. 
um, we find that um, men will call and they may not be suitable for the trial, but they are just desperate for information. And, you know, so uh, part of the criteria, men can self-refer, but we still do need the clinician confirmation that the patient can participate. So even with that initial contact, we'll have a discussion about either what their diagnosis means, are they eligible? There is sometimes a hesitation um, for some patients to when we need to approach their clinician because they feel like sometimes they might be going against their clinician. But, you know, as we always kind of keep reminding patients that this resource is to help with decision-making. It doesn't take away what the clinician is, um, what their advice is. It's to support the decision-making and to give men kind of confidence or the information to hand that they can weigh up the pros and cons of each of those options, even if it's kind of probably being a bit comfortable with the uncomfortable. And sometimes for us in practice, it means we see patients for a second opinion. Low risk prostate cancer is easy because active surveillance in Victoria, for example, uh, we've published this data showing that of all newly diagnosed low risk cancer, um, about 70 odd percent of men will be on surveillance. But intermediate risk, for example, Matt, which is more of an emerging area, um, we, we've reported from Victoria that about 15 percent of intermediate risk prostate cancers are managed with surveillance. So clinicians and patients are clearly feeling a bit more comfortable that some intermediate risk cancers, the, the ones on the more favorable end of the scale, are, are suitable. Can I ask you? you for your thoughts on that um, it's a real clinical point because only a minority of patients will be suitable for surveillance and how do we decide who we can safely offer this to yeah i think it's really interesting declan because probably the men with most to gain are the youngest men uh, but a lot of clinicians feel uneasy watching a young man with a young man with three you know in, uh, intermediate risk disease uh, and probably, I think, most of the men on surveillance with intermediate risk disease are the, the older men um, who may be trying to work out their disease biology and potentially they can avoid treatment uh, altogether, uh, you know, flipping from active surveillance to watchful waiting. But uh, as I said, it's a really emerging field and, and quite controversial. Uh, but I think as time goes on uh, and we get more insights of disease biology, uh, use of PSMA PET, and other markers uh, will get a, a really good feel for which are the cancers to save to watch and which are those that need treatment. And one of the reasons I like putting some of the favourable intermediate risk cancers onto the program is those are patients that I think are more likely to go on and need treatment at some stage, but there is usually no rush, um, you know. Um, and because the program doesn't just focus on surveillance, it does provide balanced information about um, each of the options, whether you're in the, the written arm from PCFA, you get all that, or in the main Navigate trial uh, website, you find that out. And my patient who we've uh, listened to earlier, the 58-year-old we diagnosed with low-risk prostate cancer, um, had his... Um, restaging MRI and biopsy about 15 months after he was diagnosed and his MRI had changed there was a new funny looking area on the MRI and I went on and did a biopsy uh, and it had changed to quite high volume intermediate risk prostate cancer so there we go you know this happens to as I say about one in five men on surveillance at their initial uh, you know one to one and a half year checkup they will have treatment so he actually went on and had treatment and and I asked him whether participating in the program uh, helped him feel uh, better prepared because of course he was getting information about treatment as well as about surveillance. Do you think that looking back that the information you received in the Navigate program uh, helped you uh, prepare for that eventuality when we had to say to you, oh, your cancer has changed a little bit. Let's talk about the treatment options. Um, yeah, well, it, it, was, it was a great tool in the fact that the, you know, the case study that I looked at 
um, were of different, uh, each of the patients spoke about different stages of, of their type of cancer. And so it went from, you know, like type stage one to stage two to three and, and whatnot. But um, uh, that was really good. I guess the only thing that I wasn't prepared for was the fact that my type of cancer turned aggressive. So um, I, I didn't have a clear indication of, you know, what, what to expect and what, what that meant as far as my treatment was concerned moving forward. But most definitely, um, it, it certainly provided me with all the tools I needed to help me make a well-educated um, decision. Yeah, sound familiar, Alan? Look, Give them the tools to make yes, a decision. That's what this is about. Decision aids are, I sometimes say to patients, you know, in, in some medical circumstances, you know, you turn up in an emergency department with some sort of abdominal, you know, terrible problem. There's only one thing that maybe is going to happen. You're going to have an operation perhaps. In this, we have we have options, and therefore it's really important that people have the tools to make that decision. Oh, look, definitely. And just listen to that, I think, God, I wish this was around, you know, nine and a half, ten years ago when I was having to make that decision second time round. So it's fantastic because I think it helps to, well, not think, it does reduce that decisional regret. You know, why did I choose A instead of B? Whereas this uh, program allows men to compare all the different treatments, look at the side effects and go, well, which one am I going to be feel comfortable with knowing what are the side effects after a particular treatment? So they're more informed and their partners about making that decision. So they're not feeling confused haven't heard of a second opinion, didn't realise they could have had A instead of B or C. So even if you're only on this program for, I will say, as the gentleman was, 18 months, 15, 18 months, it sounds to me he was more happier with what we now we're facing because he had a better understanding of what treatment he was about to have and why. And so for 15 months he wasn't having to deal with those two major effects. And for men who are on active surveillance you know, for two, three years, they've avoided those two major effects, erectile dysfunction, and incontinence so you can put that off and for some men they don't want to that's okay and i'll say to men that's fine as long as you understand the decision you're making and the consequences of that decision i don't think men in general really get it because all they've heard is the c word and matt probably uh, gets that as well when he's talking to blokes when he's mentioned access to violence they go what do you mean access violence um do i really need to do that well it's a consideration depending on where you're at yeah, I think that um, point around decision regret is so important. I think the more information you get, the less likely you are to experience that regret. And, you know, we, we see patients on the other end of the spectrum when they've had active treatment and they regret having that treatment, oh. you know, so because of the, si- of the, of the complications and of the side effects. And, I, you know, I wish I hadn't had yeah. surgery. And, and I just think the more informed you are, um, and especially in, in, in this patient's case where he had a period of active surveillance and then went on to treatment, he knew that there was an indication to proceed to treatment. Yep. It was a necessary thing to do. And, and I think all of that just works to, to reduce that decision regret. And um, I actually was speaking to a patient the other day who said to me, look, to be honest, I'm, um, I delayed my biopsy because I, uh, I had a panic attack and I just feel like it's better just to put my head in the sand. And you know, and and not be aware of this, which you can you can appreciate um, that feeling, that sense. And look, during COVID, it's been very interesting because people are worried about that as well. And we've we've actually bumped off a whole lot of people who might have been scheduled to have a, a biopsy, and maybe we'll do the MRI instead. And most of these things can wait. But the other end of the extreme of just ignoring it. And mm. uh, in fact, we published a paper in in the. MJA last year based out of the Victorian database um, of all the patients on surveillance, a few thousand patients and we went back to see how compliant were people with surveillance 
And we set a reasonably low bar uh, on surveillance. We said as long as they'd had one further biopsy within the following three years after the diagnosis and three PSAs. Uh, and Matt, what proportion of patients do you think, having set a low bar for surveillance, what proportion of patients do you think might have been compliant with that low bar surveillance regimen? Well, I know trying to talk someone into a second biopsy is pretty difficult to do. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'd guess maybe 30%, 40%. Yeah, yeah it was 25%. Um, and it wasn't as all the biopsy. It was PSAs as well. And it wasn't all the patients. It was you know hospitals and clinicians forgetting to do it. So I think that's another important message. And when people are on research programs like Navigate, they, they're getting messaged and they understand that so, some degree of surveillance is important. But with COVID, um, uh, you know, it's okay to bump things off a bit. But in, in finishing up, the, we had a couple of last questions about that, Natalie, because there's been all sorts of challenges in healthcare uh, over the past six months during COVID, as there will be for the next year or two, I'm sure. Have you had challenges uh, w- with the trial during COVID? Or indeed, tr- challenges in general? You, in fact, you might update us on where the trial is at because it's been running for a little while now and it's still open, but it will be closing sometime, I'm sure. Yeah, so we've uh, been recruiting for uh, just over three years. We're at 80% of our target, so 245 of 304 men. Great. Yeah, so we've got, um, hopefully in the next six months, we should reach target. And we've also recruited 93 partners, um, which is, a, they also, so patients um, and their partners also go through the same, um, look at the websites and complete the questionnaires. Um, and so some of the challenges, so COVID this year, there's been kind of a knock-on effect with delays in biopsies and subsequent diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, earlier on, our eligibility criteria was actually within two weeks of diagnosis, and that was quite challenging to recruit men in that time. So it was extended out to three months. Uh, also, just some of the larger tertiary hospitals aren't necessarily seeing the lower risk um, patients. Um, and then another barrier is access to computers or um, English is a second language. So that's kind of difficult, obviously, because it's an online trial. Yeah. Um, in terms of ease of participation, um, at, on the flip side with COVID, uh, we, we've been able to continue where a lot of tra- trials have had to kind of p- take a pause because um, the trial's online. So um, all of... Uh, like our phone calls with patients are over the, obviously um, they can be done from the ease of you know their own home they don't need to come in on site and then all correspondence is via email and and online so the question is that we ask participants to complete it one month three months and six months um, we send out um, those via you know their email and we follow up via phone so we still have that contact with pati- patients which is really great it's not really you know removed. But it, it is an ease, you know, and we'll always call patients when it works for them. So, you know, sometimes it, out of hours, out of work hours is easy for men to talk and kind of get their head around this. Yeah, that this is good, Matt, that people don't even have to come into the hospital to sign up for the trial. It's all done from home and you look after lots of patients in far regional Queensland um, and... I'll ask Alan this question in a moment as well, but uh, this is a common thing we hear that people in certain areas or regions don't have access to the same level of support uh, for medical conditions and so on. But these types of online interventions you can do from home if you have internet, et cetera, are surely a good thing. Definitely. And we've really seen a shift with COVID to phone clinics and telehealth. Uh, so having this as an online option to to send to them by email, you know, I've I'm personally emailing patients, you know, these details so then they can look at it, uh, consider their options and then contact Natalie's team uh, if, the, if they do want to participate. And it's been really great. And I think that 
hopefully it'll continue to improve, as you say, Declan, with uh, COVID, the, the cancer referrals uh, have dropped. And, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, more awareness uh, with that and knowing that active surveillance is an option that not all prostate cancer needs treatment, hopefully will improve uh, community testing and, and hopefully more referrals and assessments. I suppose, Alan, you know, Natalie's mentioned it's it's only for English speaking. You have to have a computer. Trials inevitably have some limitations yeah. like that. But if this reads out successfully and show and, and the trial eventually shows that the online resource that patients uh, rank that as a good thing, um, would you like to see this expanding into all sorts of populations? Oh, yes, I mean Melbourne has I think over 120 different <coughs> languages. So to me, it I've got a bit of a bug about that. These we don't know how those men out in those other cultures are handling diagnosis, and I, I suspect when they get diagnosed, it's probably a bit late. So they don't have options. It's either this or this. So I th- would like to see this rolled out eventually through the communities in Melbourne. And, of course, as you mentioned, as Matt has mentioned, the regional areas. So we've been really hammering the support groups around um, Australia, reminding them about the prostate uh, trial, or Navigate. And particularly for Matt and his area, we've sent out um, an email to all the Queensland support groups letting them know about the trial to keep reminding them because they... Matt has said regional areas can miss out on trials, not even know it's going on, and sometimes the clinicians aren't aware of it. So it's important we keep putting that message out, and particularly when this is up and running and publicly available, then the next, to me, the next step will be to promote it through all the different uh, areas of the community to make sure men and their partners are aware of the trial if they get diagnosed. I'm fantastic. I mean, the way it's set up, geography really isn't a hurdle. Yeah, yeah. No, so. it should be. Yeah. I'm going to give a final word to David, uh, my patient. We're calling him David for the sake of it. And finally, do you think this is a tool that we should be offering to men newly diagnosed with this type of cancer? Do you think it is helpful in both allaying concerns about surveillance and also in informing men about their other options, such as surgery or radiation treatment and so on? Um, most definitely. I think the more information a patient has, um, in regards to what options are available to them, um, certainly the better. I mean, you know, we all want to be well informed, and it's all very well, you know, to sit down in front of your specialist and to, you know, be guided by your specialist or, or your GP for that matter. But to have as many tools available um, to you certainly helps with your, you know, it's, it's a big decision for men to make and to be confronted as, you know, someone of my age, 58, 59 years old. Um, I was I was quite devastated. So um, yeah, I I found that the more information I had, the better um, my decision making process. Well, that's a ringing endorsement for that uh, patient, Natalie. Um, uh, we will put some information in the show notes about how to access uh, the trial and so on, and indeed PCFA, Cancer Council, some of our other favourite resources. Uh, wh- what are your final messages? So I just wanted to thank um, Professor Penny Schofield, who's the Chief Investigator of Navigate. Um, She was unfortunately unable to be here today, but she has a real um, passion for this trial and it has been going on for a long time. We're nearly at the end of recruitment, so it is very exciting, but we just need that final push for the last six months. Um, Also to Swinburne University, who's our sponsor, and um, NHMRC, who uh, funds the trial. And also importantly to um, to the team that have really developed this resource, so the team of experts, the clinicians, researchers, statisticians, nurses, consumer representatives, and the men and their partners with first-hand experience of prostate cancer who have, you know, 
they appear on the videos and the resources and yeah they were really invested in in developing a resource that would be useful for men yeah these things don't happen by accident do they totally fantastic (laughs) um uh, and alan anything finally you want to say look uh, i just as i say to all the men in the presentations talk to men about it let them know about it go and get a checkup actually uh taking care of your health so if you do get diagnosed, diagnosed, then this is going to be a great tool to help you and your partner decide on that treatment. And as David stated, it made a big difference to uh, being informed about the decisions he had to make. That's the important thing. It's an, you, know, you get diagnosed and you, your mind goes blank and having a resource to help you work your way through that minefield makes a big difference. So get tested, get the options in early. And go to navigateprostate.com.au. <laughs> Shameless um, plugs. So. It's been great to have Matt with us this morning and, and to collaborate with him uh, for the Navigate trial. Thank you so much for joining us, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thanks a lot for having us on this great, great podcast. I hope you continue it despite Victoria opening up. <laughs> I think we will. So thank you very much. I've learned a lot about this. Yeah. Uh, listening to um, patients and consumers talk about uh, their disease is always uh, very interesting. That's all we have time for. We'll be back soon again with another episode of GU Cast. Goodbye. <laughs>